So Money episode 1205, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. It's Ask Farnoosh Friday. And as we head into a long weekend, I hope everybody has some fun plans. If you're vaccinated or just, you know, feeling good about being around people, I hope that you are going to remain safe this weekend and able to connect with loved ones, go somewhere fun, have a good time. I went and had a lunch with a friend this week in a restaurant and it was, I can't even tell you, I, I had like an out-of-body experience. It was a little socially awkward at the beginning, didn't know whether to like fist bump or elbow bump or hug. We did a hug. We went in for the hug. We're both vaccinated. Uh, it, it, I mean, to say that out loud, it feels even a little scary because I know I don't want like people are going to judge, but I'm doing me. And this is the message that I'm giving everybody. I was doing a lot of media this week on vaccinations, uh, people going out into the world and maybe this weekend even having uh, for the first time an experience with other people going out and eating out, getting on an airplane, going to a backyard barbecue and how to do that and feel good about it or not awkward about it. And I was like, look, do you? If you're still scared from this pandemic because you have PTSD or, you know what, you aren't vaccinated or living with people who aren't vaccinated, then yeah, I mean, that comes with a bit of trepidation and reasonable concern. And so don't feel pressure to go out there and do what everybody else seems to be doing, which is out there and going maskless and having a fun time. And we know what the CDC is recommended, but depending on also what your state is recommending, it could be different. Here in New Jersey, we're still mandated to wear masks inside of stores and inside of restaurants, except when we're at our tables. And I want to respect that. I want to make people also feel comfortable. People have been coming over the house, still wearing a mask because they may not know what I'm comfortable with. And then once I get here, though, I'm like, yeah, if you're vaccinated, you can take the mask off. It's cool. I think that's nice. Let's be respectful. We don't know where people are coming from. But for you, yourself, do you. If you feel like you're going to get judged, set that aside. Do you. I'm not going to judge you. Speaking of judging, I got a couple of notes this week from listeners, an email or two. A bit of a triggering episode on Wednesday where I hosted Emma Johnson on the show. In case you didn't catch that episode, it was all about her plea for 50-50 shared parenting post-divorce. So right now, in a majority of divorces, mothers are the primary custodians or they have full custody, 80% of mothers. And there's so many reasons for this that I can't get into, uh, but Emma is a divorced mom of two herself. She runs Wealthy Single Mommy, which is a platform, a community to help single moms build opportunities and wealth for themselves. And she is a proponent of equal shared parenting time. So when you get divorced, the protocol right now is for moms to get primary custody, again, for various reasons. But one of the reasons she would argue is that it's just kind of inertia, right? The courts, moms, society, all believe that 
it is in the best interest of the child to stay primarily with mom. But that kind of goes against modern studies, psychological studies. It also has ripple effects, right? When the child engages less with the other parent, there are ripple effects to this. And studies have proven that it can lead to mental health issues. The list is long. And so the podcast didn't really go into all of that. It was really a 30-minute conversation about what is shared parenting, why Emma's an advocate for it, and how it can potentially, potentially help mothers. And of course, there are many benefits to this, but really looking at it through the lens of financial opportunities, closing the opportunity and wealth gap for single moms, perhaps using this strategy, this custody strategy as a way to do that. Oh, it's sensitive, y'all. I know that, right? And so more reason to talk about it. When something is of a sensitive nature, when something is not black or white, that's why we need to continue to talk about it. Now, I wish that I could have hosted a panel, right, of many people coming coming at it from all the sides. But this podcast really is just an icebreaker to larger conversations that we then can go home and have, or you can email me and I'll reply. I'll most likely reply. I also wrote a huge article about this for Next Advisor. It was like over 3,000 words. We trimmed it down because we know that everybody's busy and doesn't have time to read Farnoosh's monolithic articles. But I think that article provides a broader view of this and shows more angles, also brings in more experts. And so, so I got judged. Uh, I was called not educated. I was called, someone said that the, uh, the the podcast blamed mothers. And I can see where someone could interpret that. You know, we're giving advice to moms to say, hey, consider this. But really, we're saying to all parents, consider this, all divorced parents, consider this potential of shared equal time. And and I know some dads are druggies. Some dads are abusive. Also, some mothers are the same way. Some mothers are abusive. So I wasn't going to get into all of that because that's a whole documentary. Uh, but, you know, I just wanted to introduce a piece of thought leadership, which is actually trending a lot right now. And I think that it can move the financial needle along for some divorced moms. Emma's got a study and she talks about how moms and ex-partners who do 50-50 shared parenting, the moms are richer. They make more money. They have more time to make money, all the things. So listen, I just want to say that I understand all points of view. Sometimes the podcast doesn't have time to go into all the different sides. Uh, Please email me when you feel unrepresented or unheard or misunderstood. I responded to all of those notes that I got this week from a few unhappy listeners, but I will not drop the subject. You know, don't think that I'm going to just drop the subject. If anything, I will continue the subject. Thanks to you, more informed, more enlightened. So please let me know and please keep it nice. Sometimes people have the tendency to be combative in their emails to me or in their direct messages. And I don't deserve that, right? We're all human beings. It's all coming from a good place. And I do think at the end of the day, we are all on the same team. If you've arrived at this podcast, it's for a reason. It's because you do, like me, believe in financial independence and financial empowerment. And we're not going to always agree, but please don't come at me with a baseball bat. It's not nice. And I don't play that way, but I will reply and I will reply very nicely. And I hope that we can continue to engage. Shifting gears to our iTunes review section, 
Uh, I want to say thank you to our reviewer of the week who will receive a free 15 minute money session with me. I love this part of the week. I have to say, I always love talking on the phone with someone that I don't know who kind of knows me a little bit. And it always is an easy conversation. If you're worried about, you know, getting me on the phone and is it going to be awkward? It's never awkward. I mean, it's never awkward for me. <laughs> um, okay. So this week, Chris Janice, 1197, left a review on Sunday calling the podcast Illuminating. And Chris says, I have really enjoyed listening to this podcast over the last two years. Easily relatable, diverse topics and insightful comments all make me tune in every episode. As a mom in a family of five living on a lower income, I still am able to find ways to grow our investments and educate myself through this podcast. Thank you so much for quality content. Well, thanks so much, Chris Janice, 1197. You can direct message me on Instagram. Let me know you left the review or email me Farnoosh at So Many Podcasts. Let me know you left the review and I will reply with a link where you can pick a time for us to have a chat about whatever. I just talked to a listener this week about planning for a baby, planning for a move. Her partner's company just IPO'd and and now her retirement is a little bit more set. They have a little bit of a nest egg, but so many questions still remain, right? How to manage money as a couple, as newlyweds, and a lot of big milestones in their future. So I'm always happy to uh, be a girlfriend, be a, an informed girlfriend and to help you through some of these uh, big decisions. All right, let's go to the mailbag. And first up is our listener, Lau, who writes in, can you discuss how to find a tax professional to advise on future investments on the podcast? Do they need to be local, a millennial-friendly service like XY Planning Network? Well, Lau, I think that the first step in handling your investments, if you want to work with a specialist, is to work with a financial planner. But you know me, I don't like to just work on my investments with a financial planner. I want the holistic experience. I want to know about retirement planning, but also maybe education planning for my kids, insurance, how to maximize my savings. Maybe this person can also connect me to an estate planning attorney to help me with my will and all of that, my life insurance. So Start with a really good financial planner, and I think that person should also, if not him or herself, experienced in giving tax advice with regards to investments and investment planning, but can refer you to someone that they might work with. But here's the thing. You can work with a separate tax expert, uh, but they may not know your whole financial situation, right? And it's really important that whoever you work with is plugged in. I remember when I worked with a financial planner early on in our marriage, she was fantastic. She had a whole team either on staff or, you know, just a phone call away, an email away, uh, someone she liked or a team of people she liked that she would refer us to. I found my accountant through her. I found my insurance agent through her. I found my estate planning attorney through her. And it was great because then all of us could be on group emails. She could share documents with these folks and then they could be more understanding of what my needs are to then go and get me the extra stuff that I needed, that, that, the financial planner maybe wasn't licensed to do, right? Uh, but So 
in your case, you want to find a tax professional to advise you on investments. I would say start with a financial planner who might be able to do this for you. You don't necessarily have to be a CPA to understand the tax implications of, say, buying and selling stocks. And here's the other thing, tax loss harvesting, which is what a lot of us are looking for when we have an investment portfolio. It's a strategy that applies to taxable investment accounts. This is not your 401k, but if you have a brokerage account with various investments in there, you may want to look into what's called tax loss harvesting. It's where you sell certain assets, stocks, bonds, mutual funds that have lost value that year in order to offset the gains in the other investments that you have in that portfolio and effectively reduce your overall tax liability at the end of the year. This strategy is an opt-in feature across many of the robo-advisors out there. So, you know, we've talked about Elevest, Wealthfront, Fidelity, Vanguard, Charles Schwab. All of these companies have automated investment platforms, and I think all of them provide the opportunity for their investors to opt in automatically into tax loss harvesting. This will get done for you automatically as part of your membership. And so, If you work with an individual, they can do this for you on their own. It will be probably included in their annual fee, which remember, when you work with an individual, it's more expensive than working with a robo-advisor, an automated platform. But in both situations, you can get access to tax loss harvesting to optimize your taxes. Additionally, though, if you want to work with a consultant to work on things like creating a pension for your business, in that case, working with a tax professional and a financial advisor together, very important. So at the end of the day, you have two routes you could probably take here. You could work with a certified financial professional to begin with, and you can get that person through a friendly service like XY Planning Network or NAPFA. Make sure they're a certified financial professional. They, that person, can either handle your tax optimization or or introduce you to someone who specializes in this, and then together that team works with you. Okay, and you pay a fee for that. The other route is to work with an automated platform. You don't work with an individual. You plug into, let's say I work with Charles Schwab. You create a brokerage account there, and then you check off the box that says, yes, I'd like to opt into tax loss harvesting, which I explained, right? You sell certain assets that have lost value in order to offset gains in other investments overall reducing your tax liability for the year. The automated platforms can do this for you automatically. So those are the two pathways for you. I hope that makes sense. And if you have any other questions, you know where to reach me. I think this question came in through Instagram, so you can follow up with me there. Nevis has a question. She says, hey, Farnoosh, I wanted to ask if you had a recommendation for a fee-based financial planner. My boyfriend is 42. He currently has about $110,000 in his 401k through Fidelity. He also has a permanent life insurance plan through Northwestern Mutual. He pays about $500 a month for the policy, and he's under the impression that this is a retirement account and that his money is invested for retirement. But I did some research and it looks like the $500 is going towards paying for the life insurance policy and that he will have to pay the premium until he dies to be able to get the cash surplus. What are your thoughts on this? What questions should we ask the Northwestern Mutual representative? And do you think he is better off canceling that policy and putting the $500 in a Roth IRA invested in index funds? 
Well, I'm curious why your boyfriend has this robust whole or permanent life insurance plan. Okay, this is expensive. $500 a month is expensive. And he's 42. So yes, uh, he'll have to pay this forever. <laughs> it's not term, right? Where it ends at a certain year, at, after a certain number of years. It's whole, which does usually have a cash value. So I would ask the Northwestern Mutual representative about how this can be utilized while alive, right? So you're paying this premium, you pay it every month, presumably forever, but at some point, the cash value is going to be accessible to him. Um, and, and I get that that can be attractive to somebody as, an, as a way to supplement retirement income. Uh, but if you did the research and found otherwise, like there's obviously a, a big question mark there. So the, the representative at Northwestern Mutual should be able to clarify this for you and him. But the bigger question, which I like that you asked is, why does he have this policy? I don't advise getting insurance whole or term unless you have dependents who would benefit from having a life insurance policy, uh, being a beneficiary to your life insurance policy in the event that you go away? Does Are you dependent on him for income? Does he have nieces and nephews or parents that are uh, being supported by his income, in which case life insurance can replace that income, right? So the why is really important to explore here. If there's not really a person or a reason to have this insurance other than he might just feel better having it. He might feel like he's financial adulting, having this you know, robust life insurance policy. I can see where the Northwestern Mutual representative would convince him otherwise. Uh, but remember that that person's incentivized, right, to get us all to, to sign up for policies. I was poached in my early 20s by aggressive insurance agents to get a life insurance policy I was 25 years old. I had no dependents. So I didn't get it. I had insurance through my company. It was fine. You know, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough for me. I didn't have kids. I didn't, wasn't supporting my parents. And if I did need money for a funeral, God forbid, I guess my parents would have paid for that. Or, you know, we could have sold my apartment. I own my apartment and have that pay for it. So I didn't really see the urgency for life insurance. What is the urgency for his life insurance? Do the math. $500 in a Roth IRA invested in index funds for the next 25 years. What is that going to earn him versus this whole life insurance policy and its cash payout, which may or may not, to your point, be available? <laughs> like, I'm not really sure what the details of this whole life insurance policy are, but you want to get to the root of it. Talk to the representative, but also talk amongst each other about whether or not this mathematically is really worth it. And why is he doing this, right? Is it just for the quote unquote security, but really there's not really a need for it, right? You're asking all the right questions, Nevis. I'm glad you checked in. I agree with you. There needs to be some investigation on this. And I don't know if this is actually smart. Maybe he would be better off cutting his losses and moving that money into an index fund. Tia has RSUs and she's writing in asking what to do with them. RSUs, everybody, are restricted stock units. She says, I have these RSUs from my employer. They will vest shortly. So just to give everybody context, RSUs, sometimes companies provide their employees with these restricted stock units. It's another way to offer a benefit. In addition to your salary, they'll say, we're going to give you 
these many units of our stock. It's an incentive for you to stay at the company. So after three years, you can cash in on these stocks. And so she's approaching this and she says she's fortunate enough to work for a company where the stock has increased 14% since the RSUs were granted to her. TSS, from all my research, it is not advisable to have a large percentage of your investments in one company, and this would absolutely put me in that category. What recommendations do you have for how to handle these RSUs? I'm considering trading some of the stocks once they vest for ETFs to diversify my portfolio. I agree with you, Tia. I think that there is a rule of thumb that I actually really like, which is that you should never have more than 10% of your investments in one category or one type of asset or one particular stock. So in this case, after the stocks vest and you look at the pie of how many RSUs you have against maybe all of your other investments through your 401k or whatever, if it's more than 10%, I would sell a little bit of it and invest it in something more diversified, like an index fund, an ETF. I think you're right. I agree with you. You've been listening to this show. You know, I mean, you maybe you listen to Sally Krawcheck, who's the founder of Elevest and a Wall Street titan. She ran Merrill Lynch for many years. She came on this show a number of times. And I remember one time specifically, she said she had way too much money in her company stock. And that was a regret because during the financial crisis, of course, a lot of the bank stocks tanked and her net worth went south as a result of having so much of her net worth tied to her equity in the company that she worked with. So yeah, Tia, there is a risk when you're over-invested in any particular investment category. 10% is a good kind of threshold. If you exceed 10%, you might be getting into more riskier territory. I wouldn't do too much more than that. Next up is Emily writes in and she says, I'm 30 years old and I have $30,000 sitting in my bank account traditional savings account, making pennies every year. Lame, that's her word, exclamation point. (laughs) She's got two big events in the near future, a wedding and buying a home. I'd like to put my money in a place or multiple places where it will grow more, but still be immediately accessible. What do you recommend doing? All right, Emily, we've covered this a little bit on the show, but it's always worth uh, repeating and refreshing. If you need this $30,000 in the next five years, between now and the next five years, between now and 2026, you need to tap this money. You don't want $25,000 or $26,000. You want $30,000. You need to put this somewhere, quote unquote, safe. Now, I know there's inflation and inflation is on the rise. So I want to make a recommendation for you to curb inflation a little bit. Because yes, if you just keep this money in the bank account earning 0.00%, whatever it is, technically it will lose value given that inflation rises on average every year, 1% to 2%, probably more in the coming years given where we are with the economy. I wrote a piece for Bloomberg many months ago anticipating inflation and suggesting to readers if you wanted to park your cash that you don't need today or tomorrow, but maybe in like the next three to five years and you don't want inflation to take a bite out of that cash, there is a category of savings called I-bonds. It's a relatively safe U.S. government-backed investment. It's sold directly to the public. They're not going to make you rich, but they will track your cash alongside inflation. So at the very least, you won't, quote unquote, lose money. And we know inflation is on the rise. So it's something to chew on. The savings rate for I-bonds, just to share, is a combination of a fixed rate 
and an inflation rate that is established twice a year. Current rate is a little bit more than 1%. So that's better than what you're probably getting at your bank. You can technically withdraw the cash after the first year. If you do it that early though, you're gonna lose the last three months of earned interest. But after five years, you can withdraw without penalty. But also, I know you have $30,000. The savings cap is $10,000 per year for electronic I-bonds or $5,000 for paper I-bonds. It's not a cure-all, but it's an option to consider for you maybe putting part of that money in an I-bond. Depending on maybe which goal you want to do last, buy the house or have the wedding. I don't know which one. And I say that because I did it in reverse. I bought the house first and then I got married, uh, which I actually recommend if you can swing it. I'll tell you why in a second. But this could be a place to park maybe a third of that money, $10,000 worth of it, to at least make sure that it's not losing money because of inflation. Parting thoughts. It's interesting, right? You're considering buying a home and getting married in the next five years. And I assume you want to buy this home with your partner. And I'll tell you what, we benefited a lot from buying the house first. Uh, We were planning already to get married. We were engaged. We had a date. We were getting those things in motion. But I know myself, right? I'm easily tempted to overspend on things that are emotional, like your most special day. So I wanted to create almost like a roadblock for me, which was a financial roadblock. Like buying this home first would inevitably mean that I'd have to put my financial resources towards the house before the wedding. And if you think about it, you know, home, it's going to hopefully last you many, many years. It's a place you're going to live in day in and day out. It's a real source of happiness for us. A wedding, yes, it's important, something you'll never forget. But if you're deciding between where to put more of your money or how to prioritize your money, I think a home long-term is a better place to put it. You never want to be in a place where you overspent on the wedding and now you can't buy the house, right? So I knew myself, I wanted to create some parameters for myself, maybe some financial restrictions. So we set the date for the wedding, but then we went and started looking for apartments and bought the apartment first. And then a year later had the wedding. And I'll tell you, it was great because I could then go and proceed with the wedding planning with more peace of mind, with more of an understanding of truly what I could afford because I had already become a homeowner. I knew what my mortgage was going to be, right? So I didn't go for like the swan ice sculptures. (laughs) I'm kidding. I would have never done that. But, you know, we were a lot more prepared to spend for this wedding uh, knowing that we had our bases covered. It doesn't always work out beautifully like that, but, and also you got to know your partner. Like you got to be sure you're going to marry this person. So we did it after we were engaged, like things were good. We took a little bit of a leap of faith, I guess, buying a home together without actually being married and having that marriage license, but it's working out so far. So this is not universal advice I'm giving here, but I'm just giving you our personal experience and why it worked out for us as perhaps inspiration or food for thought for you and your partner. But congratulations, sounds like you've got a lot of wonderful events on the horizon, huge life milestones. And thank you so much for listening to the show. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That wraps our Friday episode of Ask Farnoosh. I hope everybody has a relaxing, safe, and memorable Memorial Day weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday with a fresh episode of So Money. And I hope your weekend is so money. So money.